Probably got to be one of the first songs we'll sing when we get to heaven. And we're there. You are worthy. Well, it's good to see all of you here this morning. It's good to have, uh, good to have some rain, green things up. Uh, already the leaves are starting to come out on the trees, which is a, a really good sight. We're glad that you made it this morning. Missing a few folks. Uh, pray that they'll be back soon. <clears throat> Turn with me to John's Gospel, chapter 4. <clears throat> We've been visiting with the Lord Jesus and this woman of Samaria for the last few weeks. And we've seen Jesus speaking with her at the well on uh, two main subjects. First, he spoke to her concerning salvation as it relates to the water of life, which speaks of her need of salvation and consequently the need of all people for salvation. Secondly, he spoke to her concerning aspects of true worship, which is a matter of the heart coupled with the biblical truth that is void of ritual and ceremony. In this exchange between Jesus and this woman, Jesus reveals that he is indeed the water of life and that anyone who believes in him would find that which satisfies the thirst of their soul. <clears throat> he also revealed that he was the long-awaited Messiah. Plainly states to her, I who am speaking with you am he. I am In fact, John gives five proofs of Jesus being the Messiah in this passage through verse 42. They're listed in your MacArthur Study Bible under these verses. Number one, he proves that he is the Messiah because of immediate, the immediate control that he has over everything. We see that in verse 27, as it says, just then the disciples came back. Just then? You mean it was just happenstance that they came back the way they did? No, it was absolute control. Secondly, he proves his Messiahship from his impact on the woman in verses 28 through 30. Third... He proves that he is the Messiah by his intimacy with the Father in verses 31 to 34. And number four, his insight into the souls of men in verses 35 to 38. Finally, he proves his Messiahship from his impression on the Samaritans in verses 39 to 42. That's where we're headed in all of this passage. 
Now we come this morning to a very strange and yet very important part of this narrative that we find in chapter 4. When the conversation between the Lord and this woman came to an end, a series of sovereign and supernatural events or developments take place. These threads in the story are there to reassure us of God's control in all situations regarding the proclamation of the gospel and its message to others. Do you ever witness to people or you ever, you ever talk about Christ to people and you get all tongue tied and you, you get all, you, your mouth goes dry and your knees shake and, and you think, wow, uh, the, surely there's, they're seeing that I'm stammering around and, and don't like, no, don't know, look like I know what I'm talking about. And, and, uh, here I am just quoting a few scriptures here and there or something. And, and oh, wow, what a mess I made of that. You ever feel like that? Yeah, I felt that way too. In fact, I've had my knees to shake so hard that I, I knew that people must have seen, uh, seen me like Barney Fife standing there shaking. Listen, there is, God has control of all of those situations. You may feel very inadequate. You may feel like that you haven't, that you haven't done what you should have done or said what you should have said or it didn't come off just the right way. And it doesn't have to. When God does a supernatural work, He does it by His power, not yours. This passage that we're looking at from verse 27, reassures us that whatever comes, God is in control of it. Notice the passage. We'll take, them, we'll take it a few verses at a time. Just then, verse 27. Uh, excuse me, uh, yeah, verse 27. Just then, His disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking to her? The words just then could be translated at that very moment. I can can remember giving the gospel to people and you get to a crucial point. And right at that moment, something happens. A phone rings. A kid falls and starts crying. A dog starts barking. Whatever the case is, it seems to happen right at that moment. What was the moment that we're talking about here? It was the moment when this woman realized That she was talking to the Savior of the world. That she was talking to her Messiah. She is, at this point, getting very excited. It shows that God was orchestrating this whole encounter. Remember that that every situation you happen upon is never outside of God's sovereign making. Nothing is left to chance. Nothing. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon said, if one molecule 
decides to go its own way in the universe, then God is not sovereign. He's sovereign over everything, over all of it. Every situation, every event, every action, nothing takes place outside of His sovereign control. It's not surprising, as we see the disciples coming back to where Jesus was at the well, their shock and their bewilderment at seeing Jesus talking to this woman, for it violated all of the common standards of Jewish conduct for men in Israel and in their society. Now, we've seen that Jewish men didn't talk to women. They didn't talk, certainly didn't talk to Samaritans or most certainly Samaritan women. So Jesus is transgressing transgressing the Jewish norm on two fronts here. He's talking to a woman, and he's talking to a woman of Samaria. No wonder they're shocked. The rabbis had said, quote, Let no one talk with a woman in the street. No, not with his own wife, his sister, or his daughter, on account of what men might think. I think they were in prison to their society. They continue. Each time a man prolongs conversation with a woman, he causes evil to himself. He desists from the law and in the end inherits Gehenna or Gehenna, which was the place outside the wall of Jerusalem. It was called it was called Gehenna, is a place where the fire all constantly burned and people took their trash and and uh, dead bodies were thrown there and the fire always was burning in Gehenna. It's a picture, Jesus used it as a picture of hell. What hell's like. Where the fire never stops and the worm never dies. It's the city dump. So just as this woman realized who she was talking to and what he had done in her heart, the disciples came back from town after having been gone buying food. They saw him talking to the woman. Had they remained with him and not gone into town, they would have certainly gotten in the way of that conversation. I remember I used to I used to go down here to the to the jail and I worked in the jail ministry there for several years. I remember going into some of the pods and talking to some of the prisoners and they always sent you in 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 at least twos. And I can remember going in with one certain gentleman and I would be giving the gospel to someone and he would start talking about other things and and just take everything off track. And I couldn't I couldn't get him I couldn't, a lot of times, couldn't get it back on track when he would do that. This is what the disciples would have no doubt done. Had they remained and not gone into town and left Jesus alone. But it was all orchestrated, was it not? Jesus chose to have this woman to himself. His grace had been applied And a sinful adulteress had been redeemed. 
And even though they had not heard or witnessed what had been said by her, they did see the joyous aftermath. The happy face. The unburdened soul of one who had their sins forgiven. I remember so clearly what that was like. Riding back home on a bus one August night. And I'd just been saved and my sins were forgiven. And I, I felt so different than I'd ever felt before. In their Jewish minds, they, there must have been spinning because they saw him speak to the woman and seen her glad response. This just didn't happen in Jewish culture. Should they chide him? Or should they question him or remind him of his place in society? After all, he was their rabbi. No, they were silenced by divine restraint. What place would the disciple of the Lord Jesus have in correcting the Lord himself? Who could do no wrong? They were silenced by divine restraint. I'm quite sure that their Judaism was quite evident while they were in Sychar. As Jewish men, I'm sure that they would not have talked to any women. Probably didn't talk to anybody in town that they didn't have to. Because everybody was a Samaritan. They had not gotten beyond their social and cultural barriers. And on top of that, the disciples saw Jesus as a rabbi. And no doubt wondered why was he breaking rabbinical laws. I want you to notice the word marveled. Look at verse 27. Just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking to the woman. What does that look like? It's the, I can't believe what he's doing. Look. What does he think he's doing? Maybe they said that to one another as they approached. But when they got there, they said nothing. They were amazed. They were astonished that he would be talking to this woman. Particularly a woman of Samaria. It wasn't, and this wasn't just a short-lived astonishment. This word marveled is in the imperfect tense. Showing They're marveling over and over and over again. They cannot believe what they're seeing. Their, Their upbringing and their former actions as Jewish men are now kicking into gear. They were taught not to associate with women directly. Primarily because of what others might think. That's what happens in a legalistic society. 
rules and regulations govern behavior, not because it's right or noble or, or anything of that nature, but because of what others might think. Peter had this problem. Turn, hold your place in John 4 and turn back to Acts chapter 10. <clears throat> Some of you know exactly where I'm going here. Notice with me verse... Well, let, me, let me just give the... <clears throat> Peter has, has been preaching and he... <clears throat> he's tired. He went up... He went to the... Went on to, into a house and he went up on the top of the roof and he, to take a nap and he lay down and he saw a vision, a vision of, of, uh, animals coming down in a big sheet, all kinds of creepy, crawly things that Jews would have nothing to do with. And the Lord said to him, Peter, rise, kill, and eat. What did he say? Verse 14. No, by no means, Lord. For I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Did you know that the Gentiles, the Jews called the Gentiles common and unclean? And the voice came again and said, kill, eat. This happened three times. Now, why did it take three times for Peter to finally get that message? God said to him, in the end, the Lord said to him, don't call what I've cleansed common or unclean. You see, Jesus had the power to cleanse this woman from her sin. She is no more common or unclean. And sometimes... Our prejudices follow us through life. And it takes sometimes a long time for people to rewire their thinking to a more biblical way of looking at things and looking at people. I grew up in the South. It was common to hate certain people and for them to hate us. And I was taught that. These Jewish disciples had learned how to be prejudiced towards certain people for certain reasons. Peter was no different. We find him after this vision in Acts chapter 10, going to the house of Cornelius, who was a Gentile, and giving the gospel to him, and opening the gospel up to the Gentile nations. The the other brothers in Jerusalem heard about that and wanted to question Peter about it. What do you think you are going to the Gentiles with this gospel? This is a Jewish gospel. But Peter had to tell them, God showed me in a vision not to call unclean or common what he cleansed. 
Jesus was not captive to social norms of the day. Jesus was the divine nonconformist doing whatever the Father willed for him to do. He was accused of eating with publicans and sinners and of allowing a woman with a sinful character to wash his feet in Matthew 9 and Luke chapter 7. He did not, he did not shrink back from the social ills or the social thinking of the day with regard to prejudice. He had no prejudice. He had no bigotry. What have you been taught in your past that still causes you pause when you find yourself dealing with situations that go against your upbringing? Things that are ingrained in you from a child, from your childhood. What do you do? I'll tell you what you ought to do. You ought to think biblically. You ought to consider that God is no respecter of people. You ought to understand that God does not discriminate one over another. This is a great lesson for all of us to understand that all the souls of all men are important and we should not be selective or prejudiced one against another. We should not pick and choose. Jesus came to save all sorts of sinners. And He does so indiscriminately. Thank God for that because if there was a discrimination... I would have certainly been one that he would have discriminated against. So what did the woman do? Well, she left her water pot and she hurried back to town so she could tell the news of who she had met and what had happened to her. Now, why did she leave her water pot? That was a question I had. Why leave the water pot? She came to draw water. She certainly needed water. Uh, maybe she was in so much of a hurry that she thought her water pot would slow her down in getting back to town. And probably would have. Maybe she left it so Jesus could get that drink that he asked for initially. Maybe she left it because she knew that she would be coming back. We're not told why she left the water pot. I think it probably was because she was so excited that she wanted to get to town so she could tell everyone what had happened to her. But the living water she had just drank was so satisfying that she didn't think about physical water. All she could think about was what had happened in her heart. And now she was most concerned about the new life that she had been given. What we're told in the narrative is what she did after this. Look at the next verses, 28, 29, 30. So the woman left her water pot and went away into town and said to the people, 
Come see a man who told me all I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of town and were coming to him. In verse 15, Jesus recognizes her need and her, her sin in verse 19. He recognizes her condition in verse 26. This is the same knowledge that he has about all sinners. He has complete knowledge of my life, your life, the life of your neighbor, uh, the life of every, that person who works next to you. Nothing is hidden from his eyes. He sees it all. Just like he knew this woman. He had become to her the source of new life. And she had to tell it. Listen, there are really no secret Christians. Now, there are those who've had to live underground. There are those who've had to be careful what they say uh, in certain situations. But when it comes right down to the to the bare facts, there really are no secret Christians. Because when something of that nature happens to an individual, it pretty much has to be told. It pretty much has to be told. So she went into the city to tell everyone what had happened. Now, I, I would have loved to have seen a replay of this. Sychar was not a small place. She would have probably been known in some quarters of the city. I'm sure there were a lot of people she didn't know. She didn't care. She told the people... Generic term. She's telling men. She's telling women. Come see a man who told me all I ever did. We would say, well, he's just trying to be a fortune teller. He's trying, to, he's trying to pull the wool over your eyes. No. He told me exactly what I had done. He knew all about me. Notice the word, verse 29, the word come. Come see a man. This is one of the great words of the gospel story. James Boyce in his, in his excellent commentary on the gospel of John enumerates the use of it through scriptures. Listen to what he says. Think of the great verses that it, that it contains or contain it. It was God's word to Abraham. Come into the land that I will show you. It was God's call to Moses to be Israel's deliverer. Come, I will send you to to Egypt. David wrote, come and see the works of the Lord, the desolations he has brought in the earth. God spoke through Isaiah. Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. The angels spoke the word to all the skeptics as they pointed to the disciples, as they pointed the disciples to the empty tomb. Come see the place where he lay. It was Christ's invitation. Come follow me. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And finally, it will be the song of the angels as they invite the redeemed to the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19. 
and of Jesus himself as he says to his own, Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Come. Lord, where are you staying? Come and see. Come. It's a marvelous thing that this woman is inviting the people of the city to come and see this man. Come and see. She was a divorcee. She was an adulteress. And her public witness to the people of Sychar, no doubt, many of whom she did not know, she openly revealed herself. Now this brings about something that I find and have found over all the years of ministry to be true. Her empty life had been filled with living water, and she had to tell about it. She could not hold it in. Oh, I remember what that was like, too. The night that we rode home on that bus and I had just been saved, I, I was uh, so so different inside. I worked in an aircraft hangar with about... 40 or 50 other guys. None of them were Christians except one. And I had just become a new Christian, just a baby, born the night before. I, I went in, I was so excited to tell everybody what had happened to me. But I was not prepared for what I would hear. It wasn't received well. And I remember thinking, What's wrong with these people? And over the course of the next years, several years I worked there, a couple of those people became Christians. There's just a very few of us. This woman could not wait to tell. Jesus had freed her from a life of habitual immorality and sin. He had liberated her to be a true worshiper of God from a heart newly created for that purpose. And when people have good news like this, it is hard to keep it a secret. She had a whole lot to tell. and She didn't care who heard. Don't you love the zeal and the courage and the enthusiasm of new Christians. They don't know they don't know a lot of theology. They don't know that they've been justified by faith. They don't know what sanctification is. They don't know what it means to have your sins imputed to Christ's account and his to theirs. They don't know any of that. All they know is that they've been forgiven and they're happy in God. Verse 28 reveals something that is true of every sinner saved by the grace of God. Now notice what it, notice what it says. 
So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, she said something. Come see this man who told me all I'd ever done. Now, you think it stopped there? Now, we're not given. I don't think we're given every single word that she said to the people at Sychar. I think she would have openly admitted, I was an, I'm an adulterer. I was an adulteress. I've been living with a man that's not my husband. But God forgave me. I'm a new person. I have, I have life in, in Christ. I find that those Jesus saves are not ashamed to tell what he saved them from. You've heard the testimonies. People who admit that they were alcoholics. People who admit that they were uh, violent. People who admit that they were drug users. People who admit that they were adulterers and adulteresses. They're not afraid to admit and to say what they were because they're not that anymore. They've been forgiven. This is one of the great strengths of a Christian testimony. Is that Christians are not, they're not perfect people. And they're not afraid to admit that they're not. Paul Paul, we see this in the Apostle Paul's life. His testimony in Galatians chapter 1 and 1 Timothy 1. He says in Galatians 1.13, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. I was a persecutor, Paul says. He writes to Timothy, formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. All unbelievers are ignorant of what they do. But the mercy of God changes all that. We all have stories to tell of our former lives and how God saved us from them. This woman was no different. She wanted others to know the one who knew all about her life and all the lives of other people. Certainly, she might, certainly she's exaggerating a bit for there would not have been time for Jesus to tell Her of every single thing she had ever done in her entire life. But he told her enough that she knew that he knew. It was intricate enough to convince her that he knew it all. And this is true. John 2 verse 24. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to people. Because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. He knows. He knew then. He knows now. There is no hiding. 
Matthew 9 verse 4, Jesus knowing their thoughts said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? He knew their thoughts. Now notice how she responded to the people of the city. She obviously believed that Jesus was the Messiah. But how to proclaim that to her neighbors? How do you do that? I mean, with her reputation and her being a woman and how women were looked upon in those days, how is she going to proclaim that the Messiah has come? Well, she did pretty good by saying, come see this man who told me everything I did. In other words, he, he knows things. He's a, he's, a, he's, the, he's a prophet of God. And then she says this, could this be the Christ? To overtly state that she had found the Messiah would have probably not been taken seriously. Come on, everybody. I found the Messiah. Come and see. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, you're just a crazy woman. So she asked the question that would cause them to wonder concerning what she had said. He told me everything. Can this be the Christ? So the people, probably mostly men were coming to investigate. And this was taking place while Jesus was with his disciples. And we pick that up in verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do not say there are yet four months, then comes harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true. One sows, another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. So the disciples brought back food. And they were urging him to eat something. Obviously he would have been hungry. And thirsty. It was likely that uh, his spiritual connection with his heavenly father overrode his physical need. For he said to them, I have food that you know nothing about. Well, they didn't understand that. They completely misunderstood what he was saying, what he meant. They were not of a mind to think spiritually about food. Jesus speaks a lot about this in later chapters. They, so they began to question each other. Hey, did you give him something to eat? He says he doesn't need anything. It was an opportunity for Jesus to teach them the importance of spiritual food. Moses had made a similar statement 
In Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, listen to what it says. And He humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna. Moses is speaking to the children of Israel, the people of Israel. Fed you with manna, which you did not know. You don't know where it came from. You just woke up and there it is. Fell down from heaven. Nor did your fathers know that we might make you know that man does not live by bread alone. Man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. People cannot live by physical, natural food by itself. There is no spiritual life in it. There's no nourishment spiritually in it. The nourishment comes from the Word of God. Jesus Himself quoted this in His temptation in Matthew 4, where He answered Satan, It is written, Man shall not, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. And Satan had nothing more to say. Jesus had said, He said, I'll make these Stones into loaves for you. Steaming hot, fresh loaves of bread. You're hungry. Eat. No, that's... I I could eat that and live physically, but that's not where life is. For Jesus, the satisfaction of saving a lost sinner was greater than the enjoyment of eating physical food. Sometimes I think we underestimate the joy that is in the salvation of an individual soul. Jesus said, Luke 15, verse 10, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner that repents. Can you, can you imagine? A sinner repents and the angels are cheering and they're happy. They're joyful. They don't even understand what's really taking place, but they know it's something good. They know that that soul is going to be living in heaven with God one day. Luke chapter 19, verse 10, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That's why He came, to save sinners. The spiritual food, this spiritual food He's talking about, consisted of doing the will of God and finishing the work. That God had given him to do. Doing God's will present presently in his life. And finishing the work. In John 17 Jesus prayed and said. I have accomplished the work you gave me to do. What joy there is in accomplishing the will of God. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will. But the will of him who sent me. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. I have manifested your name to the people you gave me out of the world, for they were yours and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Should that not be the driving force of all of our lives? To think about what is the will of God and to accomplish that? To spend each day in God's will by doing what He says? Sometimes 
That means carrying out everyday life responsibilities. Just normal life responsibilities. For family. For church. Job, in the midst of his bitter suffering, cries, I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. When people are dying, they don't necessarily want to eat physical food. But I'll tell you what, they want the word of God. They want to be close to the Lord. Jesus' very life was finishing the work of the Father had given him to do and bringing salvation to lost mankind. His living on earth was accomplishing the work because he did it perfectly. Look over, look at verses, uh, let's see. First John chapter 4 verse 9. I'm going to end with this. In this the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his son into the world. His only son into the world. So that we might live through him. This was exactly what Jesus wanted his disciples to learn. He wanted them to learn that life was about living and doing the will of God. Of course it's made up of all kinds of things. We have this esoteric idea that we have to sort of be sitting on a cloud strumming a harp if we're going to do the will of God. And that's not true. You do the will of God when you get up in the morning and go to work, when you're conversing with with your uh, friends, when you're when you're supporting your family, when you're raising your children, when you're doing all the normal things that God has given you to do in responsibility as a, as a Christian individual, you are fulfilling the will of God. That's why it's important that we learn to be faithful in what we do. It is the most important thing in life. The will of God. And when we stand before Him, it will be the most important thing. When we face Him. As to whether we did the will of God. To make Christ the center and sphere of all that we do. Whether we're here on a Sunday morning or at a sporting event on a Saturday afternoon or at a meeting at work on a Wednesday to do the will of God, to find it and do it. That's our goal. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this Lord's Day, for the word that you have given us, for the lesson of this passage for the woman at the well whose story has been told thousands of times and still it thrills us to think about her and what you did in her life and what her testimony was. 
We pray, Father, that you would use each of us like you used her. To be a voice of hope to those who are lost in sin. That they might come to know the joy, the happiness, and the freedom of being forgiven in Christ. We thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.